Well, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 3, if you haven't already, as we begin this series called It Is Good, and most of you know that's coming because I've announced it a couple times. If, you're, uh, if this is your first time, then, well, now you know. Uh, this, we're starting a new series today called It Is Good. This first message this morning focuses on the goodness of divine truth. We might just call it truth is good. But we're going to look together at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we listen to the king speak and we listen with reverence to his authority. Beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word. We open it now, as always, with the expectation you have something to say to us in it. It is true, it is living, it is powerful. It is far more than just information or good advice. But it is able to penetrate to the very core of our being. To expose what is really there. That you might heal, restore so God, we open our hearts to you and our ears to you and pray today that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory, because this is all yours, Lord, and I pray that you would move me out of the way as always and use my voice as your instrument today to speak to your people in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to uh, preface this um, a little bit, or really preface this message, or preface the series at the outset of this message, I should say. And that is to say, as I've, I've sort of suggested already, and as you got the idea when I just said what's coming, and the, the, the sort of topics that we'll touch in this series, that um, we sort of poke all the sensitive areas, uh, or maybe not all of them, but just about every message pokes a sensitive area uh, in this series. It touches a controversial topic. And um, so, 
There is a sense in which the truth is just offensive. And I don't expect this to be any less. Uh, however, what I do want to say, and, I, and, I, and again, this is important to say, uh, it is my earnest desire and intention and effort not to add offense to it. Do you understand what I mean by that? The truth itself will be offensive. I don't want to add offense to it, and I am plenty capable of doing that. Hence my need to desire and endeavor earnestly not to. Um, and as I've admitted before, um, sometimes having a, uh, you know, a sense of humor that is um, not always well-regulated, uh, it, it can lend itself to, to being um, a, offensive or whatever, to saying things that are sarcastic or just that unintentionally um, communicate something of an intent or heart other than... Um, than what I would desire. So I, I say that in advance because I'm, I will really try for that not to be the case, not to add offense to um, some things that are offensive about the truth, but I'll ask you in advance to be long-suffering if I do. So uh, come back anyway, <laughs> okay, and, uh, and ask God just to help you, um, you know, eat the meat and spit out the bones, as they say. So that's, uh, that's will suffice now in the way of preference, preface. But when I uh, announced this series a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out that uh, every day we make decisions based upon our beliefs or assumptions about what's good in all kinds of ways, and we do a lot of it unconsciously. And so we live with some assumptions about what is the good life, what is morally good. What's a good use of my time and resources, a good way to spend my life, as it were? What does it mean to get a good education? On and on and on. Our answers to these questions literally touch every aspect of life. Questions about what is good. And it's true not only at an individual level, but at a societal level. In fact, that's one of the other things I would say maybe as a preface to this series. I am, uh, I am probably more interested in thinking about these issues, uh, how they affect us at a societal level than I am necessarily how they apply to us individually. The two are always true in the scriptures that um, the implications for me affect, they have implications for other people as well because I don't live, you know, in a bubble. Uh, none of us do. But I'm, I'm more interested in that sort of societal view of things. Because as a society, we live according to what we regard as good. And we all reap the consequences of it, for better or worse. And we will reap the consequences of it, for better or worse. And in recent years or Decades, increasingly, we seem determined as a society to aim for worse. For quite some time now, America has been steadfastly abandoning or spurning the ways of God. And if you'll pardon me for saying so, it's like walking the other direction, just, just giving him the middle finger the whole time. That's the posture of the heart uh, of America and the West more and more of just despising and mocking 
God and the ways of God. In recent years, we've just accelerated our retreat. Retreat, that is, uh, from him, bound, it seems, for self-destruction. But it, that does not have to be our fate. That's the good news. Aren't you glad? Boy, we're starting off bad right to start with. That, that, that does not have to be our fate. In Ezekiel 33.10, God said to Ezekiel, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? That verse in the King James Version, the language in the King James Version, was the basis for the title of a book by Francis Schaeffer. Some of you remember it, written in 1976, called How Should We Then Live? And he took this this same question and said... uh, tracing sort of the history of Western civilization, where we've arrived now, if we're going to tear down the whole civilization which we seem determined to do, how should we then live? And the answer, in short, in brief, is to agree with God. How should we then live? We should agree with God. We should... Live the way God says is good. That really is the answer. It's simple. It's not easy, I understand. And I I do not want to uh, oversimplify that matter. And again, in light of um, where we are, it would not be a quick resolution to the issue either. But that is where hope lies. And in fact, Ezekiel 33 goes on to say, That Essentially, that message, if the wicked will turn from their wickedness, I'll forgive them, restore them. There is hope in turning from that resolute uh, journey towards self-destruction to agreeing with God and living the way that he said we ought to live. And so Genesis 1.31 says that when God completed the work of creation, he saw that everything he had, he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That is to say, at the moment we uh, read about right now, which maybe in your Bible says the fall of man, it is where the good creation went bad, and we stand at that moment and look back, everything's good. Everything is good in creation. And so if we're looking for a blueprint, if you will, uh, in, in some sense, of what the good life is, we'll find at least the foundation stones there in God's good creation. But when Adam and Eve rejected God's way, The consequences were catastrophic. That is the story the Bible tells. I understand, by the way, there may be people even here today who don't believe that. I I understand that. But that's the story the Bible tells. That God created things good, man sinned, 
They fell into disrepair. We live among the ruins, as I may have said in my newsletter this week. The consequences of rejecting God's way, the consequences of calling good what God says is not good, are catastrophic. And so there are lessons we can learn from their failure. I asked if you read my newsletter article very brief on this week to you know, go back and read this. And where did they go wrong? What were the missteps that led to the first sin? We know, uh, of course, they ate the fruit. God said, don't eat the fruit. Yeah, that, that's where they went wrong. But there were missteps leading to that decision. And I want to highlight four for us today as we begin here to say this is the moment where it went wrong. If we could rewind the tape, if we can look back at what was good and rewind and, and, and get a do-over on that, uh, what might we learn from their missteps? And what were their missteps that led to the first sin? Well, number one, giving another voice greater authority than God's voice. Giving another voice greater authority than God's voice. That is a huge misstep. If God is who he says he is, in fact, I said even just now, as we read the scriptures, as we do every week, stand and honor the reading of God's word. Why? Because we need to be reminded. It is good for us to be reminded that it is the king of the universe speaking, and he speaks with authority. He speaks with the highest authority. There is none higher than him. Don't give anybody or any other voice higher authority than his. But that's exactly what they did. Verse 1 says that the serpent came and spoke twice. First, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then he speaks again after she says, well, no, he said, you can eat of the trees, but not the one in the midst of the garden or even touch it, which was her own addition to the word of God. That's uh, another good lesson, but one we won't get into today. But she answers that, uh, uh, him, and then he says in verses 4 and 5, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. Now, what just happened? Well, the first strategy there was just to cast doubt on what God said. Maybe that's not what he meant. It sounded clear, but maybe it's not. Did he really say that? And then the second strategy was just to overtly contradict God's word. God said, the day you eat that, you will surely die. The serpent said, you will not die. Just overt contradiction to what God has plainly said. Now, those are still the enemy's strategies, by the way. He's not that creative. Still doing the same things. First, casting doubt on the scriptures or on the very character of God. And then contradicting it outright. There is uh, even a movement. It's not really even a new movement. There are just always, again, different variations of this. But those who would refer to themselves as Christian, 
think they're Christian, I suppose. I don't, I don't question their sincerity. Who are, uh, would refer to their sort of community or movement as progressive Christianity. That is just progressivism as we know it, or, or, or whatever term might, might also be used for it. Kind of the secular left, if you will, a political left sort of put in a Christian package. And, and progressive Christianity, uh, in my view, would be guilty time and time again of obscuring, making unclear what is plainly clear in the Bible. It's just taking truth that uh, God states it, it means exactly what it says, but just sort of, again, like, like something written in the sand, and you just drag your foot across it. I don't know what that really says. We can't be sure about that. It's still, it's still the same strategy. Did God really say, I don't know. And then, of course, you, you have uh, with in increasing numbers and again with increasing confidence, people outside of the faith who just outright deny, you know, co- contradict what God says is true. Now, I'll say, again, going into this message in this whole series, I'm not particularly interested in shouting at the unbelieving world for not believing. You understand what I mean? Like, I, I'm, I, this is not, I'm not going to be pounding my fist on the pulpit. Um, shame on non-Christians for not acting like Christians. That's not the point. My interest is in, in waking Christians up to what the God who they claim to worship, what he plainly says, accepting it as true and conforming their uh, lives to it. But we see that that is, uh, that, that both of those things are at play in the culture. There are those who would obscure the plain truth of scripture, those who would deny it altogether. And the, and the call to you and me is don't give any authority I shouldn't say don't give any authority. Just don't give greater authority to those voices. There are lots of voices that speak with authority in our lives that aren't infallible and they don't speak with an authority equal to God, but they speak with authority. That's perfectly fine. But what happens all the time, and it's been my soapbox from time to time and I'm not gonna get on it right now again, but I'd say you've got Christians on the political left and the political right who do that very thing, that the voice that really speaks with authority is some voice out there that they import in and try to, recon- you know, try to make the scripture validate what they've already decided to believe. There are lies on, on all across the political spectrum, you understand. And so don't let any other voice speak with high, higher authority. Labor hard to understand what has God said. When somebody asks, did God really say? You go, I don't know. Let me try real hard to find out. So that's one misstep is giving uh, another voice greater authority. Number two is trusting desires and feelings over God's word. Verse six says uh, there were a few things that the woman did in response to this lie from the enemy. And among them was she saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to be desired to make one 
wise. It looks delightful. It looks desirable. I think I'll have some. That was the decision-making process there. And so I've, I've, I've sort of labeled that or headed that as trusting desires and feelings above what God said. God said plainly, don't eat that fruit. She comes to the conclusion, well, it looks good. It's desirable, delightful. So I'm going to have it anyway. Trusting desires and feelings. Again, this is another thing people do all the time. It is part of the, the struggle we have with our sinful nature is that we want, we desire what we know we're not supposed to have. And there are all kinds of times, probably every single week, maybe every day, I'm just being generous to you, but every single week that we make decisions to do things that we desire to do, but that we know we ought not to do. That's a struggle within us going on constantly. It's Romans 7 at work, if you want to, if you want to go back and read that. But we, we trust desires and feelings over God's word. And I, I found it interesting, uh, it was intrigued to discover recently that in the Italian language, and dabbling, learning a little bit of that, uh, that the same root verb means to hear and to feel. The same, the same word means, uh, the, the word that means hear if you, if you sort of turn it upon, upon yourself and make it reflexive, it means to feel. And the, the reason that was intriguing to me uh, uh, is uh, to feel literally means to hear yourself. I should, to listen to yourself. That's how, the, that's how the, in that language, how the word feel is formed. And again, I, I don't mean to make more of that uh, than deserves to be made. It's just, it's just a, to me, a helpful illustration to say, this is really what's going on when we trust feelings. When we trust our desires and feelings, we listen to ourself. And we give ourselves, our feelings, a higher authority than God's voice. And that's misstep number two uh, that... Adam and Eve made, and I won't say more about it than that, but these are just the, the, these are the caution flags for us and the things we have to go back and strive not to do. Don't give another voice greater authority. Don't trust your desires and feelings. I remember hearing somebody say one time, you know, we're living in a generation that uh, hears with their eyes and sees with their feelings. You know, that the, the feelings uh, are, are more trustworthy in a lot of cases than what we see or know to be true. Enough of that. Number three, the third misstep is regarding as good something that God has forbidden. This is really, if I were going to choose one point in today's message, this would be the one. That what happened also in verse 6, the other thing that it says that Eve saw was not only that it was delightful and desirable, but that it was good for food. You see that? When she saw that it was good for food, and here is the point, beloved. If God says it's forbidden, it cannot be good. 
You see that? It's a really clarifying truth. If God forbids it, it cannot be good for you. It might even be good for food, for horses, cows. <laughs> I, I, I don't know who all else or what all else it might be good for, but it is not good for her. He said, don't have it. And listen, that's not punishment. Remember, looking back in Genesis 1 and 2, everything's good. There's nothing bad about that at all. But, but what God forbids cannot be good to have or to indulge. And what God commands cannot be good to deny or refuse. And this is a, a, a tragic misstep, not only on their part, but on yours and mine. When we get to the point of regarding as good what God says is not good, we're in a really dangerous spot because we have warped our judgment terribly. And I would say that is one of the, uh, one of the ways you could describe the times we're living in, calling good what God says is not good. Hence the need or, or value in going back through a series that examines out of the beginning of Genesis what does God say is good. We want to call good what God calls good. Amen? Misstep number four is disregarding the way God has ordered the world. And you wouldn't see this uh, necessarily right away, uh, like if you had read through Genesis, uh, even the first three chapters of Genesis, you might not see that uh, necessarily right away. But 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14 shines some light on it. There's a reason why uh, I, I want to draw this out here because it's going to run through, um, this principle is going to run through our series the whole way and be more or less relevant at different times. But in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, Paul, it's where Paul says um, he does not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. When he says that, he grounds it in the order of creation. And by the way, I said uh, everything in this series would be controversial. That's not really even part of the series. And I'm stirring up trouble with that as well. But my point is to say, when Paul, when Paul, when Paul makes that statement, he grounds it in creation. He says, um, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Transgressor. Now, he is not saying that Eve is to blame and Adam was not. He's not saying Eve was more to blame than Adam was. What he's saying is, uh, and in fact, I'd say, not only does he not say uh, Adam is innocent, in Romans 5, when Paul talks about original sin and the consequences of all that to the whole rest of the history of mankind, he said it's Adam's sin. I mean, both, first, both of our first parents sinned, but it is, Adam is the, uh, the, the head of the family, so to speak, and it is his sin that was consequential to all the rest of us. But he is not innocent by any respect. But the, but the point he makes, the connection he makes here, is that God had ordered their relationship in a certain way. And they disregarded it. That Eve here in this picture was the decision maker 
And Adam just went along with it. Didn't even ask questions. Right? Didn't, I mean, didn't offer any input to that at all. You look there and see what, how that reads. The serpent came to Eve. She made the decision. Adam, who was there with her, just ate it. And what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 is they got that out of order. And, and the, the, again, the relevance of this is really not to say uh, th- this is not a, a point about husbands and wives and their relationship and the order of the family, although it is relevant uh, to a certain extent to perhaps our message on mar- marriage and family. But that's not really the point um, I'm, I'm making here today. And so l- let, me, let me lift you up out of the weeds here. Uh, and let's, let's make a, a, a larger observation than that. And, and that is that as we look back to creation before the fall, we're interested to see not only the things that God created that are good, but how he ordered them and for what purpose. Okay, that might not make sense. It probably doesn't make sense right now, but, uh, but hopefully it will as we go through this series to observe how has he ordered creation. It is not just the things that are good, but the way they're ordered and for what purpose that are good. And one of the things that, the, that Adam and Eve did leading to the misstep, leading to the original sin, was just they, they disregarded God's order of things. And we need to recover a sense of order. Now, I begin this series here for uh, two reasons. And the first is that it's just highly relevant in the times we're living in. It is sort of a good header for introduction to this whole series, but it's so highly relevant to the times we're living in with regard to what's good and what's true and uh, how does God factor into that, into the sort of collective mind of the culture and so forth. I thought of just a picture, an illustration um, as I was writing this out of, of kind of the bully on the playground. We live in a time where there's a big bully on the playground, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. But a bully on the playground that, that, that sort of, you know, takes some smaller kid, bends him over backwards, you know, over the monkey bars or something, or puts him in a headlock, and, 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 and tries to make him say something he doesn't want to say, like, say you like Sally. Sally's there, you know, and he doesn't think very highly of Sally at all. My apologies to any Sally's uh, here today. Um, I'm not talking about you, but, but uh, you know, just, just sort of bending them over, um, trying to force it, say it, say it, say it. And that's part of the way bullies operate, right? We're living in a time when the world first questions and then contradicts God's truth outright. I already said that. But they go on to believe lies, assert that lies are true, and now insist that everybody else say it's true as well. That is the climate we're living in right now. Believing lies, asserting that they're true, and then insisting everybody else say it's true as well. 
the bully on the playground. And the church needs to sort of dig our heels in and say, I will not say it. And whatever it is, my, my point is to say, and again, uh, it, that, is, that is not to make um, personal every single um, issue. It is, it is not to be combative and degrading or any of those kinds of things. It is just to be resolute to say, yes, God said, and I will not say otherwise. I read a quote this week. read a quote this week by Robert George, who is a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University. He is one of those rare and endangered species called conservative professor. There aren't many of those around, but um, truly, by every, every uh, survey that's been done and all the data uh, shows there, there aren't a whole lot of conservative professors. And by the way, he is uh, really quite, to, uh, I would say, a, a good model of how to walk steadfastly and graciously in the times we're living in. He has a beautiful relationship with uh, another professor at Princeton named Cornell West, who is nearly as liberal as you can get. But the two of them have such a peaceable sort of dialogue and disagree well publicly and model that. Uh, for us to follow. He'd be a good one um, to, to follow his example. But I read a quote this week that he said that I thought was pertinent to this message. He said, ordinary authoritarians are content to forbid people from saying what they believe to be true. Totalitarians want to force people to say what they believe to be false. Let me say that again. So you can get it. Ordinary authoritarians are content to forbid people from saying what they believe to be true. Totalitarians want to force people to say what they believe to be false. And there we are, beloved. There we are. People all around, incessantly, meaning unceasingly, it doesn't matter uh, it seems how much people push back against it or refuse. The, the demands will keep coming. You say it's true. Things that people know to be false. And by the way, people, uh, people who aren't just Christian, it's a crazy time when we live in where you see 15 years ago, certainly less than 20 years ago, um, one of the greatest sort of... Uh, showdowns, I suppose, in sort of the, the realm of ideas was uh, Christians and the new atheists, as they were called. There were, there were some really uh, sort of forceful, uh, bright, articulate atheists, and um, the, the sort of debate and apologetic stage was usually Christians sort of contesting what the new atheists were saying. Now, you have atheists and Christians aligned, in some cases going, hey, no, that's not true. I'm not going to say that's true. I'm not going to affirm, affirm you in that. That's not true. It's kind of wild. And my point being, it's just, uh, it, it's not even just Christians. But any of those, any of those that push back, you still get with a sort of forceful insistence, people insisting 
that you tell the lie. And if God says it's a lie, we must not say that it's true. If God says it's um, true, we must not call it a lie. And one of the things I do want to uh, say is kind of a qualifier there. When we get into some of the particular issues that we'll get into, as I said, I'm interested in really looking at them at, at a societal level because they, they, are, they are social issues. But most of them are also personal issues for individuals. And we've got to make that distinction in the way that we deal with people. You cannot treat people like a social issue. Okay? Appropriate to say on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday as we even pray that we would have a greater appreciation for what it really means for every human being to, to be an image bearer of God. That somehow we, f- we figure out uh, the difficult walk that I did, that is, the difficult balance it is to strike. That we can both stand steadfastly in the truth, but to still uh, affirm the dignity of every single person and treat them in a loving and gracious way as precious in God's sight. That is hard to do, but it is necessary. I'll just say in closing, the other, uh, the other reason uh, that this was a good place to begin is because the truth is good, and the truth is always good. And it's true whether you believe it or not. You may not believe in gravity, but gravity believes in you. And see... To call good what God says is not good and to live contrary to God's order of things is a sure path to destruction. And we are free to choose our actions, but we are not free to choose the consequences. We're free to choose our actions. We are not free to choose the consequences. And what God's revealed as true is true. It is true, even for those who don't believe and, and if we live upside down from the way God has revealed the world to be good and ordered, we will uh, walk down a path toward catastrophic self-destruction. But it doesn't have to be so if we begin by affirming truth is good. Let's pray. Well, God, you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. We thank you, Lord, so much for that. And once again, we know that we were dead in our trespasses and you made us alive, Lord. We are yours because we, you made us so. We, we believe what we believe about who you are, about who we are, about what Christ has done for us, about what's good and true in the world. We believe that only because you, by your grace, sought us and found us and made us your very own. 
And so, Lord, we do pray that you would empower us to live in a way in this world where we can somehow live and walk steadfastly in the truth and at the same time live and walk steadfastly in grace and love. And we believe that is a mandate for us who name the name of Christ to walk as he walked, the one who was full of grace and truth. Would you teach us to be and do that in his name? Amen.